0: Welcome to Beauty Will Save the World. Thank you so much for joining us. I'm Susie Solaviv. I am a narrative consultant working for myself, a cradle Orthodox Christian from a convert family married to Gregory. We have one daughter. We live outside of Boston, and I read way too many books.
1: I'm Rebecca Lonovich. I love the Orthodox Christian Church, and I want to share conversations here about the faith from our hybrid cradle convert perspective i'm married to victor the best person in the world and together we have three sons and live in the pennsylvania wilds
0: this podcast is about faith and friendship family and food feminism books netflix art and music all the things
1: most of all it is about our experiences of beauty that brings us deeper into the love of god
0: welcome back season two everybody Yes, we're still figuring out what our seasons will be, but it'll
1: probably go along with like the school year, don't you think? Well,
0: because we're planning to take a break for Christmas. So probably like one season for the first half and one season for the second half.
1: Yeah, and then maybe we'll do like summer episodes for our Patreon or something.
0: So dear listeners, I want you to know that we had a super comprehensive conversation about this. We're not actually making these decisions now, right? Right. 100%.
1: No, we would never like, we're definitely like pre planners, like thoughtful people (laughs) with lists and checklists and pens. (laughs) We have a shared planning board. Totally. Yeah. So you should be like us. Good luck with that.
0: Yeah. Uh, (laughs) It's going to take a lot, guys, but you can do it. We're going to be starting,
1: um, yeah, consulting sidecar. To this podcast where we tell you how to get your life together. I already with, have um, <laughs> Yeah, I guess I probably shouldn't say that because you actually do do that and you're very good at it. Thank you.
0: <laughs> but I still struggle, Susie. This is actually a great moment to give a completely, what's the word, a completely unsponsored plug for my own work. Hello, yeah. if you need help getting your work life together specifically, but also your life together in general. I do coaching. So check out my website, thenarrativesolution.com soon to have little puppet cartoons on it, which I'm really excited about.
1: Oh, wow. They're really cute. Remind our our listeners the
0: puppet's names. Okay. So there's Muffin Mugfin. That name was a suggestion from somebody who follows me on Instagram. I asked people to vote on whether or not I should call him Muffin or Mugfin because I Mistyped his name, and someone said, "Why not both?" And so now it's both. There's Waffelina, who's like an orange cave woman. I love her. She <laughs> has a little uh, bow on her head, and then there's Wilbur, who is the puppet that I made myself, oh. and he is—he's so cute. He has little teddy bear ears, and he just looks really happy all the time. Muffin Mugfin is like—what <laughs> did I call them? I think I said that Muffin Mugfin is the ego waffelina is the id and wilbur is the whole person <laughs> so where
1: does this love of, of puppets come from like what's the origin story
0: there you know it really started in college isn't that funny i mean I these listen- are these are hand puppets guys like it's not like marionettes
1: or like no, there's not, marionettes. and there's not the kind with like the big with like the big mouths that open and close and like they use it in, like i don't know if you were exposed to susie and if you weren't you're lucky but a big, those are big for like vacation Bible schools and Sunday schools. Those like big mouth puppets that go up, open, close, open, close.
0: I don't know about you, but I'd love to hear a Bible story or whatever. Yeah, no, that was definitely not a part of my church school experience. We were like <laughs> memorizing Russian grammar.
1: Right. So, so yeah, so they're like little hand
0: puppets, but not like the, the Sunday school of writing. just like normal. I would like to point out that Muffin Mugfin does not have a mouth. Even better. So I went to theater school for a semester in college, and it was a very intense experience. I don't think... Have we talked about that on the pod before? No. So it was a theater intensive, and it was 13 weeks of classes, seven days a week, 10 hours a day, plus homework. It was, I mean, it was a little bit akin to brainwashing just with like the lack of sleep and the certain level of indoctrination about what art should be and theater and yada yada. So there was a lot about it that wasn't healthy, Mm -hmm. but I did learn an awful lot. So it was there actually that I discovered my aptitude for puppetry. We had to use puppets on a couple of occasions, but most notably we used them for scenes from a Paula Vogel play that I really, really love called, gosh, now I can't remember. The Long Christmas Ride Home. And it's about a dysfunctional family. And there are two narrators and three children. And the children are played by puppets when they're children. And then each child has a monologue as an adult where the actor... Comes out. And typically, what's done mm-hmm. is that the adult actor will be the puppeteer for the child that they're playing. Ah, okay. So it's a really interesting conceit. It has two narrators, and it's also heavily influenced by Japanese theater, which doesn't seem like it would go together, but does. A lot of it is based on Vogel's relationship with her brother, who was really interested in Japan and he wrote haiku, he was a poet. And so they bring in Japanese music on stage and the style of puppetry is kind of a bastardized bunraku puppetry, which is uh bunraku puppetry is rod puppetry where you have three people operating the puppet. So you oh, have wow. one person doing the feet, which is like the lowest ranking puppeteer position. Then one person does the, what is it? Somebody does the head and the right arm, and that's the highest ranking position. And then I think somebody does the body and the left arm. Okay. That's how it works. But they all have to work together. So they don't usually do that, but they have kind of a like I said, about ba- <laughs> I hate saying a bastardized pu- form of puppetry on, on this podcast, but that's always what I've called it. And so they have these rod puppets that move in this really cool way that we're not really used to seeing as Americans. Okay. And they're rather unearthly. And so we had to build and operate the puppets to do the scenes. Oh, And it was during that time that I discovered I had an aptitude for puppetry. It was just something to do with my intense focus on minutia. And yeah, I, I've also always been really interested in symbolism and symbolic movement, not dance per se, but choreographed movement on stage. And so those two things work together. And then when I came back to college, I just continued making puppets. And I ended up auditing a puppetry class at Emerson College where I did my master's degree later. And like, I didn't do it for credit. I just really wanted to learn how to make puppets. So I made more puppets. I ended up volunteering with a puppet uh, theater for a while. So yeah, it's just been part of my life ever since then. Wow. So interesting because it's, you know, it's what children do with toys leveled up. And it invites us to grapple with difficult concepts as adults the same way that children grapple with difficult concepts through play. Yeah, that's interesting. I didn't really thought about it that way. I had either until right now, but it feels true.
1: Yeah.
0: (laughs) So yeah, I'm a big fan of puppets. I really hate bad puppetry (laughs) because I would have hated Vacation Bible school. (laughs) I I would have for many reasons. The puppets not least of all. I mean, I really hate bad theater in general. To me, good theater just takes so little. You know, it's oh, really, it's just about, well, I mean, it's obviously it takes skill and stuff, and all theater should be celebrated. But if it's professional theater, like cut down on the extras and just focus on the bodies on stage and the lighting. That's really all you need.
1: Yeah, but that's like you who love theater. <laughs> like a little bit, it depends. You know, you know how like plays are written with like a certain sort of uh cadence where people just talk longer than they do in real life and they say things that they wouldn't actually say in conversation drives me nuts it's integral to the i don't know it's like this style of playwriting right but i'm like people wouldn't go out someone would have interrupted them by now (laughs) no one wants to hear about like this weird, like, creepy thing that happened to you when you were a kid. Like, (laughs) people are always talking about stuff like that in plays. I feel
0: like. Yeah. I mean, I think that television has changed our relationship to theater. Mm -hmm. And it should because – so look at it this way. Theater is to TV what portrait painting is to photography. Uh Uh-huh. They're both art forms, but one captures actual real life in such a such a close way that it makes uh-huh. the other look cheap if it tries to do so. So I think that theater, not unlike portraiture, needs to not be fully realistic in order to work. Yeah. That said, I I think there are a lot of bad plays and bad actors out there. So if you didn't enjoy the speech, it's because the play, like, well, I mean, there are lots of reasons why you didn't perhaps enjoy a speech, but you know, that could be about the playwright or the actor's skill too. Yeah. The
1: other thing I don't like about plays, not that I see a lot, Susie, I feel like I'm just really generalizing off with the few things I've seen, but they like, give you something that's very nebulous. And like this whole story that you don't really know exactly what's going on. It seems to be symbolizing something else, but you're not sure. You're not sure about anybody's relationships to anyone. There's a lot of talk about trauma and like something awful that happened, but you don't actually know what it is. And then at the end, you're like, so what was that? And and they're like, wow, what a brilliant playwright. If you can write something that nobody understands, it must
0: be good. What plays have you seen? So the one I always
1: come back to, I. I think it's called, is it called like The
0: Birthday Party or something like that? Oh my gosh, you saw a Pinter play and you're judging theater based on like one Pinter?
1: Well, it's not the only one I've seen.
0: I know he's a celebrated playwright. Pinter is weird. Pinter is like extremely heightened artistic language. And to be honest, like, I don't love Pinter either. It was just like such an effort,
1: you know, you're like you go and you're like, okay, and night out. Sit down. And then you're just like, oh, this is worse. I hate every minute. This is, this is hilarious. But it was like a community college production. It wasn't anything like, oh, you know, gosh. Oh, my yeah. gosh.
0: No wonder you hated it.
1: I got the general idea that it was about death. Is that
0: correct? Yeah. I mean, I don't remember the birthday party that well.
1: Also, I, I feel like that's a safe bet with mostly no, it's about death. Or trauma. I don't know. I think we should see plays together, Susie, so you can educate me.
0: Well, I'll take you to see fun fun, weird plays. plays. Pinter is weird, but I wouldn't call it fun. <laughs> I wouldn't call it fun either. <laughs> but I learned I learned a lot about myself
1: and death and, you know, birthday parties.
0: Yeah, okay. So I'm looking up the birthday party right now. 1957. So that's already a problem. Was I in a scene from this? Yeah, I totally was. And I didn't like it either. Yeah, I think I played the weird landlady.
1: Oh, yeah. Yeah, weird landlady. Yes. So like, something bad is happening, but I'm not yeah. going to talk about it.
0: <laughs> well, it's about death, but Pinter. Okay, so I'm, I'm just glimpsing through the Wikipedia article right now. So the birthday party is actually meant to be a comedy but a comedy of a comedy of menace like a lot of these absurdist or really abstract playwrights uh-huh. were actually trying to be funny and so if you f- see someone who's good at interpreting it then it'll be funny but if you see somebody who's not good at it it's going to be just a slog like are you familiar with the play mm-hmm. waiting for godot?
1: Oh, I've heard of it but I've never seen it.
0: No, it never shows up. Yeah, so in the play, Estragon and, yeah, Vladimir and Estragon, they just hang out for the entire play waiting for Godot. It It is the most excruciating thing in the world until you realize that they're spending the entire play trying to entertain each other.
1: The, the theory that I- Unsuccessfully, like, I'm going to guess, since nobody else is interested in it.
0: No, it it is successful if it's done well. Like, so Patrick Stewart and Ian McKellen starred in Waiting for Godot on Broadway, and I'm sure it was unbelievable. I'm actually really sorry that I missed it. But the theory that I like about Waiting for Godot, and I think Beckett would hate this because, like, Beckett just wanted his stuff to stand on its own. But the best way I've heard of to approach the material is that it's about the death of vaudeville. So it's these two old vaudevillians hanging out, waiting for the next thing. And they're just entertaining each other while they wait.
1: Huh. And does that come across like, oh, remember that act we were in when we were
0: juggling? And then like, <laughs> not even a little. Bit. It's very. In the mood. So, yeah, maybe this just isn't your kind of thing. But there are a lot of good plays. <laughs> Next time you want to go to sure. the theater, tell me first, and I'll tell you if you're going to enjoy it. How's that? Yes. yeah. That's actually kind of the problem with with Pinter and some of these other playwrights is that they were experimenting with story and seeing how they could break away from from a sto- traditional story arc or make this make the story not really a plot per se. Huh? And that doesn't work for everyone. I was an intern at one of America's most, I want to say, one of its most important avant-garde theaters, the Wooster uh-huh. Group. And uh-huh. their stuff just, like, a lot of it doesn't make a lot of sense. <laughs> it's just something you go and experience. And, like, when you dig into it, there's a lot of meaning, but I feel like you would probably hate it.
1: I don't know. I just probably haven't had enough exposure to kind of make connections and uh, compare and contrast and just like, no, this is what they're trying to do. This this is a uh, badly done or this is this director's like signature or something, stuff like that. I've not had enough experience with theater.
0: Well, I don't think it should matter. You know, <laughs> you should go into the theater and come out with something, you know, Uh-huh. if you don't come out with something, some kind of, take away whether you feel uplifted or entertained or maybe th- look at the world differently. Like if you haven't achieved some sort of catharsis, then I don't think that the the work has done its job. And there will pe- be people who disagree with me because everybody disagrees about everything when it comes to art. But that's what I think.
1: Yeah. Yeah. Huh. Well, I wish should have a whole podcast on theater, actually. I would like to dig in more, actually. You could like tell us about your favorite plays and stuff. I think that would be a really good episode. Okay.
0: So what we're actually talking about is the book that we both read, Theology yes. of Home, Finding the Eternal in the Everyday.
1: Yes. And it's by Carrie Grass. Carrie Grass and Noelle Mearing and Megan Schreiber with Photography by Kim Bale. And actually, I think uh, Theology of Home, too, is coming out soon.
0: Oh, really? I'll
1: probably get because I really liked it, actually.
0: Tell me what you liked about it. I'm dying to know.
1: Well, it's a beautiful book. The photos of uh, are of real people and real homes. It's not particularly styled, but the emphasis is kind of on warmth and uh, personality over like a particular like decorative style or design style, and kind of talking about how we live in our homes and how. That is as much a part of our our, our life in Christ, Perhaps. yeah, uh, our spiritual life as in, you know any other parts of our of our um, existence, and how the physical space of home can bring us closer to God and each other, or it can um, it can be an impediment to that. Would you say that's fair to say?
0: I think so. Yeah, I think that's that covers the essence of the book. Yeah. So tell me what your impressions of it and what you kind of took out of it. Let's see. I bookmarked a bunch of pages where I found things that I like. So what was really funny to me was that the parts that I liked the most were when they were quoting non-Catholic people like C.S. Lewis. Right.
1: But to be fair, that's always the best quote in any, in any line of quotes. Yeah.
0: So there was a quote early on that I really loved. Imagine yourself as a living house. God comes in to rebuild. At first, you can understand what he's doing. He's getting the drains right and stopping the leaks in the roof and so on. But presently, he starts knocking the house about in a way that hurts abominably. What on earth is he up to? The explanation is that he is building quite a different house from the one you thought of. You thought you were being made into a decent little cottage, but he is building a palace. He intends to come and live in it himself. I really loved that. I liked the connections that they made between the mass and home and i the mass and memory and home and Uh the idea that we love home and we long for home because we're really longing for our heavenly home and the connection between mealtime and liturgy. My biggest takeaway from the whole book was the idea that your home is not for you because I think that is subconsciously the idea that I've subscribed to pretty much my whole life. Like home is not, I don't create home to get away from the world and to get away from other people. I create homes so that I can invite others into it and make it a place for them.
1: Well, one thing I thought was interesting is that this book was like kind of prophetic. Like it was published right at the beginning of this year. I think it's when it came out or like just at the end of last year. And in the beginning of the book, it talks about how, you know, a lot of times in modern times we spend less time at home, but it seems like we have sort of like this cultural longing to invest more in home and to to make it a more beautiful, welcoming space. And it talked about how popular, for example, HDTV is and like home improvements, shows, and the interest in things like that, decorations and such. And uh, of course, no sooner does this book come out than all of us are spending much more time in our homes, more perhaps than we ever have before. And I've noticed how like as far as buying trends, you know, everybody's buying things, things like home gyms and like home cooking appliances or uh, tools or utensils and things for the garden or the yard. And we're all of us just like in this moment, just settling in to our homes <laughs> in a much, in a much more meaningful way and intentional way. And also it, home <laughs> has become not just like a sort of uh, figurative, like symbolic refuge, but it is actually a refuge now from the plague. <laughs> and, and I think it's so interesting that, that this book, you know, kind of arrived right at that moment for us.
0: Yeah, that section about HGTV, actually brought up something for me that I've been thinking about, which is that I think we, as a society, as we become more secular, we try to turn our homes into paradise. Uh And the nature of home is not to be perfect. It's not to be paradise. It's always going to end up being messed up and being imperfect. And so I see the I see like the HGTV obsession and like decorating obsession, which, Hey, I'm not knocking decorating. I love to decorate love it. But the, the like obsession with getting everything just so and keeping it just so is it's a worldly impulse and it takes us away from it. it takes us farther away from our true home, which is in heaven.
1: Right. And it, it's also fueled by our fuels sort of a circle consumerism and like conspicuous consumerism and aspirational buying and I noticed that back when I lived close to a target which I don't anymore but I think because my mom has like a strong German um, heritage and like kind of pass it on somewhat I was just mystified like how how many throw pillows can people buy (laughs) like (laughs) looking around like but at the same time you know just Walking through and seeing, oh, this nice thing, this pretty thing. If I buy this, then my house will be like this, and I will be like this, you know. And there's like nothing wrong with looking at nice things and maybe and imagining or even buying them, you know. What would enhance your life or something, but there's only so much that you can really utilize, you know, yeah. in a healthy way. What else? Did I think I loved how it said like home is a sanctuary and sanctuaries are holy. And to sort of think about our homes that way, like it's it's a sacred space. And I mean, it is like, that's where most of our prayer happens, right? Yeah. We sit down um, to eat together. It's sort of an icon of Holy Communion, right? But even more, it's of our communion with Christ, and sharing the sharing that we look forward to in heaven, God willing. <laughs> and uh, I love that it talks about the material matters. And I think that's something, it's, like, it's easy to go both ways. You can like be overbuying or like, over consuming or keeping up with the joneses that kind of thing or on the other side there's the material it doesn't matter like the idea is that you have either that it's you know like doesn't matter enough to take care of or and i think there's like a little little echo of this in like the minimalism sort of aesthetic trend that the look like the appearance of like a nothing <laughs> is, is more important than how you actually live and function and engage in a space.
0: You know that I'm a Marie Kondo adherent, right? Uh I I want to jump in before I lose this thought because I think it's important. The one thing that I don't love about Marie Kondo or that doesn't resonate with me is that her work is heavily influenced by Shintoism. Uh And so I think the thing that turns me off about ultra minimalism Is that it does seem to be like on one level, on some levels, it's like a joining with nothingness. Right. Yeah. Uh huh. Which is not a Christian philosophy. Like we're meant to be joining with God. So Uh Uh that's why I guess like I could never be a full on minimalist. I'm more like a just enoughness person. (laughs) But I want to have things there to make other people comfortable and happy. And like they yeah. still, they still bring me joy but my joy comes from seeing other people use them too you know
1: yeah and i think sometimes too like it's with
0: <laughs> with minimalism especially like in minimalist
1: design or especially inside of homes like tremendous amount of resources and like buying and consumption goes into creating the aesthetic which is just not a practical everyday way of living like you know if you to achieve for example like that minimalist kitchen you know it's just like you know, gray cabinets and a slab of stone for the counter and like no visible appliances. Like what's the point?
0: Like, we had a conversation about children once where I brought up something that's coming up again. We talked about how the purpose of children is to mess things up to like help us to remember that earthly perfection is fleeting and not, not real. But what's real are these other people moving around in our lives.
1: That's so true. I know my children have this incredible, incredible intuition. They'll find whatever is that secret little thing that I cherish. It's maybe a little bit too much but I'm, that I especially love or that I'm especially proud of or that gives me particular satisfaction. And they will destroy it or damage it or or break it or <laughs> stain it it's uncanny uncanny you know it, it can be up high it can be inaccessible. it can be perceptibly indestructible it can be hidden it doesn't really matter they find it and it is destroyed <laughs> or at least altered you know yeah. and, and i live with it after that knowing that i think it's like a little bit of reminder of humility not Not like, oh, I'm not worthy of nice things,
0: something like that. But just that, like... That nice things are not what comes first.
1: Well, I I want to say something more like, you know, things aren't... Things are made to be used and engaged with, not set aside as, like, a monument to our acquisitiveness, maybe something like that. I don't know. Oh, I have They're not trophies, you know, like our things in our lives aren't trophies. They're, they're meant to be, they're meant for people and the joy that they bring is like the joy of being with people,
0: I guess. Okay. Stop me if you, if I've told this story before on the podcast, but my mother who hopefully is not listening to this episode had (laughs) a, Betsy McCall doll that she was really proud of. Betsy McCall was the mascot or something of McCall's magazine. And so my mom oh. had really wanted a Betsy McCall doll. And so she sent away for this little china figurine. And for my entire childhood, it was wrapped up in paper and still in its original box in the cabinet. And I wasn't allowed to touch it if she wasn't there. Uh-huh. And so when we were cleaning out her house, I found this box and I said, oh yeah, this is a Betsy McCall doll that I, like, we need to be careful with it. It's worth a lot of money. Like, you know, my mom will be upset if anything happens to it. And Greg, my husband was like, bull. And he looked up how much the doll was worth today. And it was $12. Oh, (laughs) sake of $12. I never played with this doll. Ever. Oh yeah. Yeah. The same thing was true of another Barbie that I received. It was like a My Fair Lady Barbie. Do you remember the pink outfit that she wears in My Fair Lady? I forget which you've seen My Fair Lady, right? Uh-huh. She wears this very floofy pink outfit. And so I received a Barbie and I wasn't allowed to actually take it out of the box because it was gonna be worth something someday. <laughs> oh no, I know. <laughs> yeah. No point. That's why I don't get I don't get furniture that I know I'm going to treasure over much. Uh-huh. There's no point. There's no point. I'm just going to stress myself out.
1: Oh, that's something I love about it's sort of like a little commonality through Elizabeth Guja's books when she describes a room, usually like a room that's very cherished by the lady, the woman in the story. It always is carefully curated. With beautiful things, but none of it's new, and it you know it's probably worn. You know the furniture worn, carpet thread there. I mean like over and over again. This is the description, but it is um, exquisite and in good taste, and very beautiful. And that reminds me what you said: if you can't use it, then it's not. You can't use it, and it can't be used, and it cannot be beautiful while it's being used. (laughs) It's probably not a good thing. Like it's not like a deeply good thing, if that makes
0: sense. Yeah. I feel like people have instincts about which things are good and which are not. Too like I I think there's a reason people are drawn to natural materials and not just plastic. They, yeah they talked about that in here, didn't they? Yeah they did. i <laughs> here I thought that I was like coming up with something new, but you're absolutely right.
1: <laughs> what that's something that I really loved about that section and I remember something that one of our friends who is a priest said he was talking about craftsmanship and like beautiful things made from natural materials with the work of a craftsman or artisan. Yes. Um, it being a more, more good, more fulfilling and happy thing to use and to own. And I remember him saying, and I forget what exactly what we were talking about specifically, but he was saying, you know, there's a real difference in how you feel when you use something. That someone else made themselves with their hands versus something that was made with a machine. And I haven't really thought about it before that way, because so much of what we have around us is made through automation. i it really just kind sort of stuck with me as like a way to think about what we use and what we buy and how using something actually does affect us ourselves, you know, using something physical. Even mundane affects our us and our and our soul.
0: Yeah, absolutely. I would never have articulated it that way before reading this book, but I think it's true. I, I have always felt really drawn, especially to hand thrown pottery.
1: Oh yeah, because you, you can even see um, the potter's hand often on it, where they like dip it in the glaze.
0: Yeah, and there's something so special about it. Yeah. Absolutely.
1: Oh, it also pointed out about craftsmen that um, Christ himself was a craftsman, right? He was a carpenter. Yeah. He made things with his hand. And there's a lot of other professions <laughs> that he could have had. But I really love thinking about that, his work before he started his ministry in that context, that like, he made things, probably very beautiful things, but also things that people used in their everyday life. And
0: Yes. Yeah. Hang on. My cat is trying to... Okay. So speaking of materialism, my daughter found this Christmas tree topper angel and it's enormous <laughs> at a thrift store. It has real feathers for its wings and the cat is now eating the feathers. Oh no. It was $3 and she loves it so much. She carried it around with her for this entire weekend. When she when we were driving home, she's holding it up to the car window so it could see out the window.
1: Oh, how cute. Yeah. <laughs> she's the best. Oh my gosh. That kind of imagination like how she engages with the world. It's, it's like it's so sweet and it's like somewhat different than how my boys <laughs> interact with things although I mean like Luca or Roman especially the baby he does he does love a, him as a stuffed animal but mostly as my dad said they learn through destruction <laughs> that's how they engage with things they, they take, just take things apart like very quickly and with my first it just really took me a while to understand that this is just how he played. <laughs> I started reading, rereading Elizabeth Guja's Pilgrims Inn, which is probably my favorite of her yes. books. And it, it's a very home centered story. It's all about, and it's actually all about a home, in fact. This has kind of like been a thought that's been developing in my head over the last few years. And it has to do with the the phrase beauty will save the world. Because I was the first time I was like really pondering that statement was after I had my first child, and I was mostly at home. So I I was still working um, a few shifts at the hospital, but mostly I was home. And I kind of struggled to think of what I was doing with most of my days as something other than getting off easy, if that makes sense. Because I knew so many working mothers, and I knew that my job was very challenging, and that lots of women that I knew did both that work that I did and also taking care of their child and their home and, and their family at the same time. And philosophically, I knew the value of maintaining a home for a family. but I just I just didn't really have like a like a why for that.. Yeah. <laughs> and it occurred to me that, that that's what I was doing or trying to do or achieving. What on my best days was creating beauty in this little space of the world, which is it's a really godlike work, right? Like to create beauty in the world. And then as I had more children and now a bigger house, I realized that a lot of that was calling beauty out of chaos <laughs> and this constant fighting against chaos and which is hard it's like it's hard not just like on like a, like a, like so much to do kind of level but just like it's a kind of a war like on a <laughs> soul level how is this not ever done knowing that it's always going to be this back and forth back and forth between um chaos and beauty and chaos and beauty and trying to pull beauty out of the chaos and it was sometime around that point i was realizing that that i heard father stephen de young's explanation of like the creation of the world as god calling the world out of chaos and and i was like oh okay so that's what that's what we're all doing and like the most probably like the most fundamental like human level that's what women have been doing all along, right? It's like this very like real like invitation of God, like calling beauty out of chaos. Yes. And so anyway, this quote one that Lucilla is the sort of the matriarch of this family, the Elliot family, and Nadine is her daughter in law. And they're at the sort of family home. And Nadine is visiting and it says, Lucilla knew always, and Nadine knew, in her most more domesticated moments, that it was homemaking that mattered. Every home was a brick in the great wall of decent living that men erected over and over again as a bulwark against the perpetual flooding in of evil. But women made the bricks, and the durableness of each civilization depended upon their quality. And it was no good weakening oneself for the brickmaking by thinking too much about the flood. And of course, this the setting of this story is just after World War II. And that, that's kind of echoed throughout this story. All of these people, the characters in the story, having experienced the war in one way or another, and sort of looking to create, looking for beauty, for permanence, for home, after so much of the world around them had been destroyed by great evil. And so I think, I don't know. I think that's still quite relevant for all of us. It's like, it's not, it's not hidden or unimportant what we creating home. And it's not, it's not like a backwater. <laughs> it's in a really sort of uh, mystical way. It's sort of the uh, front lines, I would say. And like this fighting evil, fighting chaos. Is that too bold? <laughs> yes.
0: Yeah. No, I think it's true my parish priest growing up always gave the same sermon at weddings where he would say the family is like a little church. Uh-huh. And yeah, I just, I think that's true. And,
1: Oh, I, th- I just want to say another thing that I've just been thinking over the last few years, again, we have this cultural idea from like, I think the Victorian times and then on to like the fifties that the home was women's work and then like the men go out and do work outside but that's really a post-industrialization model. Yeah. But but from earliest Christian times, the ideal was sort of like every, the, the family being together in the home and everyone working together to create and sustain the life of the people in the home. And it's not really practical for a lot of us in the modern times, but I don't like the idea that the the woman belongs in the home or like the home is the domain of the woman or something like that. It's like we've sort of been culturally like left alone to do that battle. Yes. <laughs> but but it's all of our it's all of our work. I just wanted to put that in there. I'm not I'm not like saying everybody should, you know, like live like a fifties housewife or something like <laughs> that. And nothing like that. And in fact I think, you know, I wonder a lot if the sexual revolution and like the the feminist movement of like the seventies, sixties seventies wasn't like A very, I mean, it's it's. I often hear it portrayed as like things were like, things were good up until the nineteen nineteen sixty or whatever, nineteen sixty five, and then like everything went to heck in a handbasket. But people went nuts, and and, but you know, if if things had been so good before, things wouldn't have gone bad after. So
0: the idea of the nineteen fifties housewife, I think, is a direct response to World War Two and for the need for the need to create that type of a home. But it wasn't it wasn't ever real. It was like a it was a construct, it was an overcorrection.
1: Right. Right. I think that's a good point because I think the way that people were supposed to, to do that in America, like didn't acknowledge anyone's trauma. Yeah. And um, and the homes were brand new and built in the middle of nowhere. They had no connection to any anything deep or historical or lived in and that's kind of the opposite of what happens in this book the pilgrims and where the people um, sort of come together in this like place that has very deep roots and deep history and has been a home and a refuge for people over many centuries and i think you know maybe there's something to that like Nobody had a chance to heal and connect the past to the future. It was just sort of like a cut off time, maybe. Yeah,
0: that makes a lot of sense to me.
1: So I'd like to have a part two of this, but I would just like to ask, do you have an experience or a peak home memory or experience or ideal that you kind of envision when you go about your homemaking?
0: Peak home for me is, and always has been, my siblings gathered around the kitchen table the night before a major holiday. Aww. That's, my mother has gone to bed, and we're just all sitting there talking, drinking, but mostly swapping stories, making fun of each other, laughing uproariously. That's home to me.
1: Aww, that's beautiful. Beautiful. It doesn't mean it has to be a specific person's house, or a specific place. It's more like the gathering and the...
0: In my head, it's always the kitchen table at my parents' house. But that experience of home is the experience of gathering like that. I think
1: one thing that sort of stands out to me is that experience of being out and about or outside for some reason or another. And then coming in and it... Being this very welcoming, like warm space. I remember one time we went on an errand with our dad. I think he wanted to give my mom a minute, <laughs> so he took us all with him. And when we came back, my mom had tidied up and she had dinner going. I think it was like, and it was just like the beginning of winter, so dark outside, glowing lights inside. That moment is just really stuck with me. That walking in, it's your home. You're welcome. There's something warm and nice to eat, and it's relaxing, and it's your place. And the other kind of experience of that that I remember, and I think kind of like unconsciously informs my ideal of hospitality, is my godmother, who is a nun. She was attached to a men's monastery but separate, she was the only one. She had a little skeet. That was just an old, a home and uh, like maybe a couple acres that that the monastery had bought. And and I would visit her, like at the end of high school and then early college, no matter what time we arrived, she would always have like well, let's have some tea. And so we'd have tea, always something with it, and. Every evening, the same, you know, like, let's have some tea. Like, after prayers or whatever, let's have some tea. And it wasn't anything. It was obviously very simple and monastic sort of fare. But it was so cozy. And, like, a feeling of, like, rhythm and warmth and predictability and welcome. And so I I often think about that and just, like, that sort of experience and feeling. So, yeah. I love that. Well, this is fun. So we'll have a part two, guys. Woo-hoo. But in the mean in the meantime, Susie, what have you been reading or watching or up to?
0: So I, gosh, I just finished a bunch of books. I finished Guy Jin by James Clavell, and then I am reading. I just finished the newest shopaholic novel. I love the books. I love them. They're the perfect escape. They're like eating a chocolate. (laughs) It's just so fun. And they're so fast. So I just finished the newest shopaholic novel. That's uh, Christmas Shopaholic. I am reading Lovecraft Country. And I just started The Great Alone, which is already shaping up to be much better than I thought it would. Like it's gotten great reviews. There's no reason I would have thought that it would be bad, but I just I I am surprised by how engaged I am <laughs> as I read it. Oh cool. Yeah, it's been good, but I kind of need breaks from it because it's a bit dark and I don't think the great alone is gonna be, you know, light, but it's just different. So I'm going back and forth between the two. And then for watching, Greg and I have been watching The Vow, which is about Nexium, a cult that was based pretty close to his church in Albany. And I remember when we were dating, he pointed it out to me and said, Oh, that's the Nexium headquarters. It's this weird cult. And then a couple years ago they finally arrested everybody. And so there's this documentary about it called The Vow. And I'm also watching The Haunting of Bly Manor.
1: Oh, oh because my friend Jessica said she's like, Rebecca. Stop whatever you're watching and watch The Blind Manor because I want to talk about it.
0: <laughs> it's it's the turn of the screw, which I hadn't realized. And when I found that out, I was much more excited about it. And now I'm pretty into okay. it. Huh, okay. Well, I haven't read that. What about you? What are you reading or watching?
1: Well, I picked up, like I said, many times during this podcast, Pilgrim's In. Highly yeah. recommend it, friends. It's part of a trilogy. The first one of the, of the book is, is okay then Pilgrim's Inn is the middle one. And then the last one is Heart of the Family. But Pilgrim's Inn is by far the best. And then you can read it as a standalone. And I, I think that's fine if you do, because it's the best. And then we, this is a funny story because I think Greg would be satisfied on hearing this. I suggested a week or so ago that we watch the 28, I think it's 2018 a series edition of War and Peace, I hadn't seen it before, and he has Victor. And in the middle of that, I mentioned how I I had read about this new book on the Napoleonic Wars called The Napoleonic Wars, (laughs) A Global History. And it basically talks about the impact across the world of these events, the Napoleonic Wars. And so Victor has bought the book. It's huge, very, very intimidated. In the meantime, we started the mini series, and my impression so far—I think we we're in four episodes—in all of these men are the worst. <laughs> like Pierre, like such an idiot. Like I don't even feel sorry for him. Like get it together, you know? Like okay, you grew up in the country. Lots of people do. They don't have to be stupid their whole lives. And then that young one, who's the, the brother of Natasha, mm-hmm. like such. A toad, the worst, a big jerk. I hate him. And then that tall, handsome one who, at the beginning of the story, his wife is pregnant and he leaves her with his family and goes off to war. He doesn't really like her that much, not really in love with her, goes off and uh, leaves her with child, takes all these sort of dangerous uh, army jobs hoping for glory. He gets it. He gets back in time for his wife to die in childbirth. And you know what? He's he's a big jerk. Forget him. Who Do needs well. it? Like, ugh. So I don't like any of them. But we'll see. Maybe things will improve. But like Paul Dano, you know, playing Pierre, like these big eyes and just like, oh, <laughs> you know, it's so hard to it's it's so hard to, you know, get it together and be smart. Like I don't buy it. I don't buy it for a second. Like, you know, pull yourself together, man.
0: Did you, are you familiar with the musical Natasha Pierre and the Great Comet of 1812? I feel like I've heard of this, but I've never seen it. No. Okay. You have to, you have to listen to the soundtrack because it's just a part of War and Peace, but it's so like, it's so fun. And the way they break down the characters for you at the beginning is really helpful and I think you would enjoy it. The opening (laughs) song of act two goes in 19th century Russia, we write letters, we write letters (laughs) and it's just fabulous. So just look it up, look it up on Spotify.
1: Okay. I will check it out. And I've been watching Jane the Virgin and enjoying it immensely.
0: I started watching season one, Gosh, I think when I was pregnant with my daughter and I would wake up in the middle of the night, I'd watch the episodes of Jane the Virgin because, like, I just couldn't sleep. Well, it's
1: lighthearted and it's um, effortless to watch. It doesn't require any sort of psychological assessment of the characters or what's going on or is this really about death and not about a birthday party. You know, everything's very clear. There's even a narrator that tells you what's going on in case you're confused and it's colorful and everybody's pretty and lots of humor and like smart cultural references absolutely delightful
0: all right well till next time stay golden pony boy
1: thank you each and everyone for joining us today we would love to continue this conversation with you on our patreon linked slack channel We have the Patreon so that, for once, the trolls will have to pay a toll to spew obscenities and call us prostitutes. But we want to cultivate a community there that we can grow towards in in in-person, real-life friendships. Please share the podcast with someone you think will like it. And if you liked it, please rate it on iTunes or wherever. If you did not like it, please keep your opinions to yourself. Also, please pray for us. Thanks and talk with you all soon. Bye.